Well, hello, and welcome to Enroute, the podcast where we talk about life along the way. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Make sure that you visit the website, that is enroutepodcast, all one word, dot org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our show on various platforms, such as Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, um, RSS. And doing that makes ensures that you won't miss a show. Um, also, if you have found value in this show, if you like what you hear, it would really help me out if you leave a rating on whatever platform you are listening to this. When you do that, you make it a lot easier for people to find this podcast. I think it, I like to believe it has something to say um, in the wider culture. And so if you do that, uh, leave a rating or review, that would help a lot. So thank you so much. Um, Today's episode is um, one of the, my commentaries, which I have to find a better name than that. But, you know, part of one of the temptation is to say something like, get off my lawn, just as I remind myself that I'm now at the age where my dad was the one telling kids to get off his get off the lawn, but I don't know if that would work. But um, I'm doing a um, podcast now because uh, this week I won't be able to do any interviews or anything because I am going on a vacation, I'm going to visit uh, relatives uh, in Michigan where I'm from originally, and my mom, um, who lived in Michigan for decades, is going as well as my husband. And it'll kind of be fun because we're actually uh, hoping to go. If you've driven from, as like I have, from kind of the west of Chicago to Michigan, um, you basically go through Chicago, um, which is an interesting ride. Um, Chicago is kind of the place where it seems like every freeway in the country meets, and so you're stuck in traffic somewhere. Um, we're actually going to go, when we go out there, um, go the other way, um, through the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, um, which is beautiful, and um, then coming down into the northern, across the Mackinac Bridge and into uh, the Lower Peninsula, uh, and on my way to on our way to Flint, so um, that's kind of why I'm doing this this week. And um, this week's is a is a commentary. It's on two issues. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, kind of uh, a postscript to the interview we had this week with Jeff Mitchell on mainline Protestantism. And also um, talking a little bit about uh, the writer, uh, J.D. Vance, who is running for the Senate in Ohio. Um, I wrote an article, an essay about that, which somehow is incredibly popular. Um, But I wanted to kind of talk about that as well. Um, So I think the thing I want to talk about first, and then there is actually one third thing, and that is about the wider conservative movement and and really actually the Never Trump movement is, are we ready to move beyond just criticism? And do we have any idea of what we would like to see conservative become? So, those are the three things I want to talk about. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, obviously, is mainline Protestantism. And um, I hope that you were you were able to listen to Jeff's interview. I think it was it was great. He is great in I think this uh, synthesis that he can be um, a church that is very much open um, to LGBT folk, which um, matters, of course, to me, but he's also willing to preach what I want to say is the old gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that 
we are sinners and that we are incredibly in need of grace um, and that it is only through Christ that can do that. And he kind of is someone that, and there are a few, that you want to see that that's what mainline Protestantism is. And and so often it has become, <clears throat> excuse me, something that is less than that. Um, you know, I, I think he has, he is correct in how, in some ways, we have this kind of half of a gospel. Um, either we are someone that focuses on social justice, um, you know, we're always kind of out onto the next protest and talking about this issue. But too often you sometimes don't hear about Jesus. Or if you do, Jesus basically, he's kind of a mirror image of what I think conservative Christians do, is that Jesus becomes a cheerleader for our issues. And instead of Jesus... Um, really being about holiness and God kind of love personified. Um, that this is God among us. And it's not necessarily simply God as kind of the political activist. Um, but on the other hand, we have sometimes, not as much, but I think it's there, which would be kind of a, not as engaged on social issues, but kind of talking about Jesus. And it's kind of, as he said, a weak civic religion, and it doesn't really say much. And, you know, I've been to churches like that, and those are, Churches, in some ways, sometimes are dying on the vine. I think one of the things that I have been fascinated in is how this is, to me, as, as a mainline Protestant, such an important issue of the, the future of this tradition. And I think that this tradition matters. But I worry at times that a lot of people, colleagues of mine, people that I see in the pews, no matter kind of where they are, I, I always feel that they don't see that. They don't see that this tradition matters. And um, that too often we are so engaged in other things that church is kind of, it's a nice thing. But I don't feel like we think it's vital to us. It's vital to our lives. It's vital to the wider culture. I think we see it as something that's pleasant, but we're not too involved in it. And I think that that's sad. Um, there is... Earlier this week, I read something by Ryan um, Burgi, who is a pastor, but he is also a professor um, of religion. Uh, he does a lot of writing. I'm hoping maybe someday I can actually talk to him. But um, he talks about his the town where he is a pastor and basically about most of the mainline churches basically becoming endangered. Um, he is talking about the fact that um, the church where he serves, he has been there for now for 15 years. Um, on an average Sunday, it's been about 50 people. A decade earlier, it was double. When the building, was, the building itself was dedicated in 68, there were 300 members. The people, <clears throat> the people who attended his re most recent Sunday were 14, and four of them were his family. And he's pretty blunt in saying that he doesn't think that the church is going to exist in the future. And he looks down 
the road at some of the other mainline churches. The Episcopal Church down the road um, has about the average attendance of 27. There is a Lutheran church and um, a Presbyterian church. They worship in the same building. Um, frankly, because um, the Presbyterians only had less than 25 on a good Sunday, they couldn't afford their building anymore. So they sold it so that they could share space with the Lutherans. And the other only other mainline church is um, the United Methodists. They have a strong um, base. However, the United Methodists are, are, are dealing with a lot of issues, and there is, there's a a schism coming in the church in the near future that uh, because of the issue of same-sex marriage. So there are um, this church he thinks very much will likely go on the more conservative end, which means that they would not be um, considered mainline anymore. And so he's noticing that, um, and I think this is where it's, it's the key sentence that I want to talk here. He says this, Thus, if you are a Protestant in my little community, but are more moderate in your theology and politics, you basically have one church that will be viable for the long term. If you are evangelical, you literally have dozens, if not a hundred churches, that take a conservative approach to politics and theology. What he's saying, basically, is if you are someone that is not necessarily a conservative Christian, and I need to say this at a time, I am not putting down conservative Christians, but if you are someone that maybe have more moderate politics, if you are someone, let's say, that doesn't have a problem with same-sex marriage, there are fewer spaces for you to worship. This is another um, paragraph that I thought was fascinating from this essay. He says, some people desperately want to be part of a Christian community. They love the gospel story of a simple man from Galilee who lived a sinless life and died an innocent death on the cross that somehow saves us from all our sins. They believe in the redemption of that simple act. But they also believe that women can and should preach, and that if two men or women want to marry each other, that's none of their concern. Shouldn't those type of people have a few options of church home as well? Most of the people who would still like to be a Christian but can't be evangelical are gritting their teeth and going to the local Southern Baptist or non-denominational congregation. Oh, I'm sorry, aren't gritting their teeth and going to the local Southern Baptist or non-denominational congregation. They're leaving religion behind entirely and not looking back. As a pastor, I can't fathom how anyone thinks that's the best outcome. And that's something that should, if you are a mainline Christian, should bother you. And I remember last year at this time, I was talking with people and kind of talking about the future of, of congregations. And everyone else all of them were members of mainline congregations and worried. I was worried about, you know, our churches going, some of these congregations going to be around. And most of them seem to not be that bothered by that fact and thought, you know, there's, will be another church down the road. And, um, I finally said, you know what? I need to have a mainline congregation because that's the only place where I can be accepted as a gay man. I mean, that's it. You know, there are other churches, and again, I, I am not putting down any other congregation or other tradition, but I can't be a part of those. I could not be, in some cases, I couldn't be a member, and in other cases, I couldn't be an ordained minister. That's it. This is the only tradition I have. And, and, but yet we act as if this tradition doesn't matter. And the fact is it does. There needs to be this place where someone 
who is gay or someone who wants a woman who wants to be a minister, that they have that place to go, that they have the place to live out their call, that they can come to communion and know that they are loved by God and that they are cared for by God. And that's the other thing that made me think about this is that um, Berkey's um, essay was as important to talk about that, but it also brought up another thing. It's like we have to want for this tradition to live on. And I'm worried that we don't want it to live on, or that really that we don't care if it lives on. I find too many mainline Protestants who don't seem see the importance of their church, the importance of of faith, of how important it is to people, how many people want to be part of a Christian community, many people who want to know about Jesus but don't want to have to pretend that they are something they aren't. We kind of calmly don't care when Christian communities have to end up closing. We don't necessarily get very involved in church planting. We're involved in other things. We, you know, I see it every, all the time, where people don't go to church all the time. You know, summer is a time to not go to church. As if somehow God takes a vacation in the summer. We don't want to invest in this faith, and that this faith matters. And that's kind of the thing that it has been chewing at me lately is. I'm not going to go to a more conservative denomination, even though I think theologically I'm more orthodox than most people. I can't. As I said again, I can't. But we don't seem to be interested in that. You know, I I see churches will spend time working on and making sure that churches are open and affirming, especially when it comes to LGBT folk. And I think that that is important. It's valuable. But then we need to try to keep those churches going. That it's not simply just about... Because if we're working on trying to create these churches or to, uh, to make them open and affirming, and then a few years later they close, which I have seen happen then what are we saying? That this doesn't matter? And I've just seen far too many people, far too many denominational executives, far too many members in the pews who don't care whether a church is open or not, who don't seem to be interested in planting new churches, who aren't interested in trying to pass on the faith, whether it is to their children, whether it is to people around them. This episode, this part of the episode may come out a bit more bitchy than I had planned, but it's partially because I truly believe in this tradition, as, as and it has its problems. Lord knows it has its problems. It drives me crazy. You can listen to some of the other videos where I've talked about that, but we need it. I need it. This is the place where I can worship with others together, and I can do that openly as a gay man, and I can bring my husband, and we can worship God together. People in our world need that. Christianity cannot just be the realm of more conservative people. And so I, I just hope and pray, because I experience this in my own life, of the kind of, I don't know, lukewarmness of people, that we, I don't know, rediscover the importance of these traditions, that we 
rediscover the importance of Jesus Christ. And we understand the concept of grace and forgiveness. That it's not simply about being a civic religion or a nice little club on a Sunday. And it is also not just about being kind of the Greenpeace with a hymn every so often. That it is about something different, something bigger than any of us. That it's about a God that loved us so much that God became human and vulnerable to live a life among us, to die an innocent as an innocent man, and that that death, life and death and that resurrection, that coming back from the dead, changed us. That's what we need to treasure. Because if this tradition goes away, there's no getting it back. And I think that our society, our world will be the poorer for it. But probably what's going to be a theme throughout this episode, if we think that these things are important, you're going to have to work for them. You're going to have to invest time. You're going to have to do the work. Sometimes, you know, we look at, especially in mainline churches, as we, as churches get smaller and shrink, and trust me, I am in a shrinking church, people look at them and then walk away because, you know, we don't think that they're successful. And I shared this essay before about how to revive a dead church, but, you know, again, I wish that if you have this belief or this faith, that maybe you will come in and be the witness, be the person that can be the spark. And stop thinking that you have to go, that church is about something that meets your needs instead of taking Christ there and maybe sparking a revival to be a missionary in some way. I just wish I would see that more because I, I don't see it, at least in my own life. I see people see too often that we take everything for granted. That there is a lukewarmness. That there isn't a sense of a passion of the faith. That the faith matters. I'm thankful for uh, the interview I had with Jeff, and I'm hoping I can talk to some other people in the mainline church. Uh, because I think that there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of interesting things. And I hope that th it can be a, a catalyst in some way to someone who's listening to this so that they can little by little revive our tradition because it needs to be revived. It cannot go away. Because as I said before, if it goes away, that's it. And we make it harder for people like myself or people who are dealing sometimes with doubt or someone who believes in the role of women, expanded role for women, with no place to worship, to come together. Okay, so um, let me move on to the next thing I want to talk about. And that is... Uh, J.D. Vance. I wrote um, an article on Medium. I will put it in the show notes. Somehow it has gone nuts. I, I usually write stories in Medium and maybe like a few people read them. This one, it seems like everyone is reading it. And I'm not trying to say that it's like I'm some kind of great writer, um, but it's just kind of shocking how things went that way. Um, I would not have expected uh, this to happen. But um, I call it, the, the story is the betrayal of the Trump whisperer. Um, and 
this is kind of a it's a, a personal story in some ways. I I don't know JD Vance. I've never met him. Um, and maybe it actually helps if I actually tell you who he is. Um, JD Vance is as um, a, an author. Um, he grew up in Southern Ohio, um, and in 2016, he wrote a book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. The book was actually, I think, a very, I read it back in 2016. I thought it was a, a really good look into especially poor kind of working class whites and how they live, um, and it, for me, it was fascinating just because it was so, there were so many kind of relations to what I saw, especially in the 80s, um, among working class African Americans. And so he was telling this, and like I said, it, this book, of course, came out the same year that Donald Trump was the nominee. And he was kind of harnessing this anger that was felt by the white working class. And so J.D. Vance was writing this book, and the book was basically writing about the, the struggles of the white working class. So he, in some ways, the, there was a kind of a synergy between these two things. But Vance was interesting because while he was, and he is, was a conservative, and he made that known up front, he did not like Trump. He was, um, because the fact is both of them, were both Trump and Vance were focused on the working class, but they offered in that many ways different solutions. Trump was the kind that would offer, if you think about bread and circuses, he was the one that offered the circus. He talked about, you know, his kind of racism that was out there and just kind of the way that he belittled people. And Vance was different. And, and again, he is a conservative. He believed that government needed to do more in helping the working class. But he didn't like Trump because of his anti-immigrant stance. And he said this to this um, to Terry Gross in 2016. I think I'm going to vote third party because I can't stomach Trump. And that is what he did in 2016. Um, he, in some ways, was what I was hoping, what I was glad I could see, was someone that um, was similar to Trump, interested in the working class, but he didn't go down Trump's road, uh, road of, of being anti-immigrant. And so he, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, he became the, the go-to person um, for policy. He was invited to think tanks uh, or on um, different events where he talked about this different kind of conservatism. And it was one that was not so wrapped up in, in less government and tax cuts but he was worried about things. He was worried about poor, the poor. He was worried about kind of the, the, the corporate power and how it kind of sometimes hurt communities. He was offering the bread instead of the circus. And, you know, you kind of had a hope that maybe he was someone that was going to put the center right on a different path, that it could reject the excesses of Trumpism and go down this road that would be helping um, the working class. I really hoped and truly hoped that Vance was going to be the future of the Republican Party. And in some ways he is. Just not the way that I expected The Vance that I read, the J.D. Vance that I read in 2016 and followed along in 2017, 2018, is not the same one. It's not the same J.D. Vance of today. As I said, he is running to an, uh, a crowded race 
to replace Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, who is retiring. Now, Vance could have been the kind of conservative anti-Trump candidate. However, just like someone else, another person, Elise Stefanik, um, who is a representative from New York, Vance kind of realized that um, it was not going to be easy to run as someone opposed to Trump. So he decided he had to go full MAGA. And he dropped everything that he once believed in. And like a lot of other polls, he was going down to Florida or to New Jersey, wherever Trump is these days, to get the blessing of the orange one. He is working very hard to erase old tweets that were incredibly anti-Trump. And now he is tweeting out basically stuff that is incredibly racist or at least leans racist. He had a one that was a quote-unquote joke where he asked a question that he was having to go to New York soon and acting like as if he had never gone to New York. And he was trying to find out where to stay. And he even he went as far as to say, I've heard, I've heard it's disgusting and violent there. And But is it like Walking Dead season one or season four? I mean, you know, this sort of stuff was just um, horrible. I mean, you're going to call a city violent and disgusting? You know, you know, he decided basically to throw away all of what he once was. He made sure he could try to memory hole his anti-Trump tweets. Thank goodness people were able to dig him up and to become a good pro-Trump troll. He has even gotten, he's even been, uh, had reported um, in the news that he has offered a mea culpa um, by regretting what he said about Trump all those years earlier. As I said before, I don't know, um, and I have never met J.D. Vance. And there are a lot of people out there who don't like Vance, especially people who are more liberal. I don't know. I have received people who say, you know, you should read these books because they're doing, they're better than what he has to say. And I think the reason that a lot of a, a lot of people do like him is because he wasn't. Um, a lot of the people who would write stuff about the working class, white working class, or about Appalachia, were all the kind of good liberals who would write the same thing, and it's not shocking or surprising. He was, in essence, man bites dog because it was a conservative writing about this but writing about it in a way that also, while it offered some conservative viewpoints, also was heterodox in a way. And so reading that and then hearing how he's ended up, it's hard to not feel betrayed. You know, I'm reminded of something that uh, Jonah Goldberg wrote that said that you have to wonder if Anything that he has written and said in the years since he'll be elegy was ever true. I think it was for the most part, but I think it's hard to wonder what happened. What did what went wrong here? Um, Mona Charon, who writes um, for the Bulwark, has looked at his Twitter feed, and it is full of these alarmist tweets about immigration, something he would never say before. Um, he has been on podcasts by, you know, such luminaries such as Seb Gorka and Dinesh D'Souza. Um, he is now tweeting about how unfair that it was that former President Trump had been booted off social media, never mind that he had used social media to incite, you know, a bit of a riot. He, I think what's hard here is, you know, you've seen a lot of politicians that were said one thing and did another. And in some ways, that is not as hard because 
in some ways, that's what pol- politicians do. They they look at where the wind is blowing and they follow where they go. Um, but this was someone that wasn't simply saying he was anti-Trump. He J.D. Vance gave clear and moral reasons why following Trump was so wrong. And he appeared in many ways as an avatar of integrity. And, and in the years following the Trump win, that was so important to see someone who was right of center, who was standing against Trump in these very moral ways. And so I said, as I said earlier, my hope was that Vance was going to bring forth a different kind of conservatism. But I guess it's not easy to be a politician in the GOP in the age of Trump without basically kissing his ring. The thing is, is that he is taking a gamble. Um, he is trying to feel that this is what he has to do to win the, the, uh, the primary. But I think as Matt Lewis wrote, you know, he could go back to his old ways if he wins. He might, you know, do that. But I think it's too late. Because even if he did go back to that, people who trusted him, people who saw him as someone that was kind of an example of what it meant not to follow Trump, will remember what he did. They will remember that he decided to go MAGA. They will remember how he fell in to the Trump camp when he knew full well who Trump was because he even said who Trump was. What people will remember is his betrayal. He lost people's trust, and you never, ever get that back. And maybe that's what's so also so sad, is that I don't think he realizes he's going on a one-way road. That if he ever finally gets to a point where he regrets what he did, he's not coming back. He has made his bed. As I said in the, the article that I wrote, that even if he changes his ways now, no one will trust him. He hurt people's hearts. He hurt the hearts of so many admirers, so many people who were cheering him on, so many who looked at him as someone they could look up to, someone that believed in believed in something more than simple cynicism because he did believe in something and he did stand on something stand against Trump morally but the thing is people won't soon forget that it was J.D. Vance who plunged a knife in their back. As I said, when you lose people's trust, you don't get it back. He has lost people's trust. So I hope he enjoys his newfound MAGA world because that's where he will stay. Because no one will accept will accept him ever again. So now I want to move on to the third topic. Third topic I want to talk about is about the conservative, or I should say, never Trump movement, and it's something that has left me trying to figure something out, and it's where. Do we want to see this movement change? Do we want a future for it? I was reading actually an article by 
Jacob Greer. He is a libertarian writer. He was writing about the fact that he has kind of slowly moved away in some ways from his kind of strict libertarianism towards liberalism. He's not necessarily, I think, going full progressive. But he has, you know, gotten involved in different groups like the Neoliberal Project and um, really think that this is important. And the thing that I think at times I'm trying to figure out is are we interested in the future of this movement and what does it mean? Um, I think it would be one of the things I would like to see more of is um, how do we want to recreate this movement? Because let's face it, the movement that we were, that came across in 2015 is gone and it's not coming back. Donald Trump destroyed that one. And to be honest, it might have needed to be destroyed. I think it stopped really listening to people. I think that's why Donald Trump was so popular in 2016, because he was tapping into the anger that a lot of people were feeling. So we can't go back to that. And, of course, we also have to be aware of the current state, which I think a lot of people are, that it's moving how Trumpism and conservatism seems to be moving almost into a kind of into fascist or fascoid or whatever territory. Um, what happened on January 6th, I think, is a pretext. We will, this is not the first or the only time this will ever happen. We will be seeing this happen in the future. And I think what I'm trying to figure out with this movement is that sometimes the way that we talk about things, whether it's um, January 6th or the move or the thing that it seems like there are so many people among the grassroots that are um, falling into this, we basically act as if the battle has been lost. And I think it's only lost if we think it's lost. the battle still goes on. And I don't care when people say, well, the Never Trump movement is really small, so they're not going to make any change. Or, you know, the Civil War never really started because they, they won. I think both are not true. There is still a battle. It might not be the battle within the party in the way that we expected, but it is still a battle. And if we want the center-right to stand for something other than some type of proto-fascism, then we have to get organized. And I know, we I do see like the um, American Renewal Movement, and I'm hoping that that becomes something that is um, vital and that will do things like recruiting candidates, um, but I'm also worried because I've seen this this before, this, this show happened before, where people have some movement that they want to reform the GOP or, or be a different voice within the GOP, and they have this nice little website, and they may have a few press releases, and then they disappear. And so I worry, is this going to be another thing like that? Are we just going to kind of share a few little things and then vanish because we don't really have the time to banish the months following the insurrection at the capitol have been basically an accident happened in snow slow motion we know that a crash can happen that donald trump can do something that can hurt, and the people following him can do something that can hurt american democracy and so we know that this is going to happen And I also understand we don't know how to combat this because it's something, Trumpism is something that has not 
happened to the Republic before, but we have to figure out how to stop him and stop the movement. And to do that, we have to also engage and say who we are and how do we provide a different voice, a stronger voice, and also stay in the fight for the long run. I think that steering the movement away from Trump is going to be a multifaceted endeavor. And that means recruiting volunteers. It means creating maybe local groups, local clubs of like-minded people. It means recruiting candidates and creating places where people can talk about policy. And I think this is the most important, persuading Trump supporters that there is a better way. And if you tell me that all Trump supporters are basically all hateful idiots, I think you're wrong. I don't think all of them are. There are many that are like that. There are many that are white supremacists and all of that. But I'm also reminded of people like Daryl Davis, who is is an African-American musician, and he has made it his goal in life to actually create friendships with Klansmen. And because he has done that, I mean, he's like, he's gone as far as going to the Klan rallies with them. And it's not that he loses who he is. He knows who he is, who he is. But he's been able, because he is able to create a relationship with these people, they end up giving up the life. They give up the robe. In fact, he has a closet full of robes of former white supremacists. And that happened because they were willing, he was willing to engage them instead of just ridicule them. So I have to believe we can persuade Trump supporters that there is a better way. It isn't going to be easy, but it is I am tired of people saying that it is impossible. To do this, all of this, it also means that we have to, as never the Never Trump movement has to really come to terms with something. The reason that this Trump won and, and beat everyone else in 2016 is that the message that was being portrayed or that was being sold was a message from the 1980s. It was, again, low gov- less government, low taxes. And that worked in the 1980s. When you had a 70% tax rate, yeah, that's going to work. It ain't going to work that well when the, tax, the highest tax rate is hovering near 40%. You've got to expand policy options. I will put this in the notes, but I think you know, there are two, uh, Jerry Taylor and Samuel Hammond from the Scannon Center, really believe you have to offer ideas that move the center-right away from what they call zombie Reaganism. And the fact is that if we want to beat Trump and beat Trump with policy, we can't go back to 2016. We have to do something new. We have to listen to the despair that is plaguing the working class. And it means offering ideas, ideas like what Mitt Romney uh, was shared with his um, uh, child allowance. It means offering something like catastrophic health insurance. It's, It's doing those type of ideas. And so what I hope is that our movement is not just kind of looking as if we've lost before we've even begun, but that we can see ourselves as a people of hope in a very dark time, and that we don't give in to the despair, but that we're willing to come up with a multifaceted struggle against Trumpism, because we have to. Because if we don't, American democracy is going to be in peril. It's already in peril. And we need to do what we can to put Trumpism on the ash heap of history. 
Well, that is it for uh, this podcast. I hope that these issues were of some interest to you. Um, I do want to say thank you for listening. I hope that you visit the website, enroutepodcast.org. Sign up to be on the mailing list. I do have a newsletter that goes out. Um, The first one just went out, so if you go to the website, um, you should be able to find it. Um, You can also make a donation to support this podcast. Um, Isn't always easy, or or this is not cheap, um, and this is a way, if you want to say thank you for this, um, whatever you can give would be important, would be helpful. Again, please consider uh, leaving a review or rating on uh, whatever podcast platform that you listen to. Uh, subscribe to the to this podcast um, so that you can uh, make sure that you get each episodes. And that is it for this episode of En Route. Um, like I said, I don't think there won't be any other message or uh, any other. Um, episodes this week, um, but I will be back probably later the following week um, or the first week of August. I do have some um, episodes coming up in in the near future that I think you will enjoy. So uh, take care. Uh, That is it for this episode of En Route, Notes on Religion, Politics, and Culture. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care and Godspeed. (laughs) 